gentlemen, I must say this is a highlight for me, a personal highlight uh, of the Arsponi session. I'm very, very pleased and very proud to announce Ivan Krastev to you. Ivan Krastev is chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia in Bulgaria, and he is a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. This is one of the reasons why Vienna is so great, because we have, I mean, people like Krastev having in Vienna, that's really a privilege of the city. From May to December 2019, he has been awarded the Mercator Senior Fellowship, and beyond that, he is a founding board member of the European Council on Foreign Relations, a member of the Global Advisory Board of Open Society Foundations New York, and a member of the Advisory Council of the Center for U European Policy Analysis at the European Cultural Foundation. And I could continue now with several similar very uh, important positions, but I must confess that this is not the main reason why I invited him uh, and why I'm so proud that um, I have the privilege to meet him now. The reason why I'm invited him are in particular two books um, that he wrote in 2019 and 2020 and that I read, and both of them um, were uh, mind-opening and mind-blowing for me. The first one uh, that was published in 2019, The Light That Failed, A Reckoning, and then in 2020, one of the very early attempts to, to, to analyze the crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, is titled, Is It Tomorrow Yet? Paradoxes of the Pandemic. That uh, was published in 2020. The Light That Failed, the reckoning that I read in 2019, in my view is the, if I may say so, is, is the, 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 the most convincing explanation and analysis of what happened in Europe and to Europe uh, since 1989 that I ever read. It's really, if you have not read that book yet, you need to because it explains, um, it explains the situation uh, that uh, Europe faces um, in, in, an, in a really outstanding way. Um, the book, however, obviously was written before the crisis um, and, um, and the book ends, I, I, if I may tell this to the audience, uh, at the beginning, for the non-readers in the audience, the book ends with two alternative endings. Um, so it says that, uh, and, and Kastev even gave an interview on this that I saw, that at the beginning they really wanted to publish this book with two different endings, but the editors uh, seemingly did not agree with this. So it's one book having two endings there for instead of two books. And, and one of them is the positive view so that liberalism might readapt to the situation and might uh, might survive in a sense. And the other one is the pessimistic way of a further decline of the European Western liberalistic approach. Um, and it's open, it's an open ending. So it's unclear what, what the outcome will be. And therefore, Ivan, if I may ask, would you still keep that ending open if you were writing the book today? Listen, I will, because I always believe that future is the invasion of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So from this point of view, what is common between the pessimists and optimists is that they believe that they know what the future has stored for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not so sure about this. And uh, for us, when we started with Stephen Holmes writing the book, The Light That Failed, we had a clear idea that certain type of a period, certain political cycle has ended. Uh, but from this point of view, we were not very much sure exactly what is going to happen after this. And even this crisis with COVID-19, keep this uncertainty very much with us. Because one of the interesting story, at least for me with uh, uh, the pandemic is that it was not so much a disruption, but amplification of certain trends we have been seeing before. And if you're going to see, probably the outcomes are going to be very different in different places. But one thing is for clear, the world in the way it was imagined and constructed in 1989, the post-Cold War world we were talking about have ended and uh, kind of the pandemic was the official ending of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be some kind of a last chapter that was not written yeah. yet then. 
yeah. which is probably not. It should have ended with the virus, but we were not aware then, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But that's probably not the mainstream story. I think the mainstream story that is told at the moment is is that this crisis, the, the pandemic, uh, is a crisis that is funda fundamentally more serious and 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 more fundamental than any other before. And from a lawyer's perspective, this might, at least from, from a European legal perspective, this might even be true because uh, all, the, all the limitations in our fundamental rights that we see at the moment are unique in comparison with anything that happened before since the Second World War. So at least for a typical European lawyer, I would say, one must say that this is, this is by far more intensive than anything that happened until then. Uh, and it's perhaps even structurally something different because all the, 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 the size of the problem led to all kinds of changes in the democratic system. So for example, the governments have significantly increased their power in comparison with the parliament. The communication to the media has significantly changed because media at the beginning at least were just repeating what the government was saying. Uh, the constitutional courts were, and the lawyers were rather silent at the beginning and so on. So one could argue from a legal perspective, from a European legal perspective, I must say, that this is different. It would not be the last chapter of one book, but it could be also the, the first chapter of another one. No, you're absolutely right. But, uh, and uh, I, I'm going very much to agree with you. What is interesting for me and is the following. First, this is the first global crisis that we experience. Hmm. It's not simply that it was over. Uh, every way in the world, basically, the pandemic became the major issue, but it happened in a very short period of time. If you go and imagine that you're watching all the TV channels in the world in March, mm -hmm. nevertheless, that you don't know probably most of the languages in the world, you will know very clearly what is going on because there was one topic and this was the pandemic. But my way of looking at this, and uh, as I told you, I agree with it that it's a profound crisis. My idea is this is a profound crisis that should be interpreted as the second coming of the three previous crises that we faced in Europe in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Since many of the things that we talk about, the restrictions of rights, for example, all the surveillance issue. This is the second coming of the debates that started with the terrorist uh, attacks in places like Spain and France. Mm -hmm. And it was very much, uh, what was new was how people reacted. Mm -hmm. uh, during kind of a terrorist crisis, the European version of 9-11, uh, uh, people were much more critical and much more reluctant to give the governments the right to survey, to track movements, basically to restrict rights. Of course, in the time of pandemic, people were much more tolerant and particularly the, the, the virus tracking apps uh, were not opposed by the majority of the population in the EU member states because the fear was not simply that this is a threat for your health, but people were very much afraid to infect other people. So mm -hmm. basically being responsible. If you see on the financial side, of course, this crisis is much more profound than the crisis that we have in the last 20 years or probably any time after 1945 in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, but the interesting story is that it's also the second coming of the global financial crisis. If you see all the major debates, including the Corona bonds and so on, mm -hmm. you have the feeling that we're in the same debate, but now we came to a totally different conclusion. Mm -hmm. Now European Union and European Commission and particularly Germany support policies that they have been strongly opposing in 2009, 2010 we went for certain mutualization of the future deaths. If you see the level of redistribution within Germany, much higher than you can imagine in 29, 2010. And then when you talk about closing of the borders and all these issues of basically uh, uh, borders, in a certain way, the COVID-19 is the second coming of the refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. Because in March for over three or four days, there were more borders being closed within the European Union than during the migration crisis. So from this point of view, I agree, but my idea is this is a crisis that amplified the crisis before, that exposed the certain things that were there before mm -hmm. and simply make it much more deeper and much more profound and to be honest, much more consequential. So from this point of view, I totally agree with you, but even the change of the power between the parliament and the governments it didn't start with pandemics. Mm -hmm. Pandemics allows us to see it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how strong this trend is. But mm -hmm. in a certain way, one of the major strengths of the trend was also the moment 
the very European integration was one of the ways in which the executives are becoming stronger than the parliaments on, uh, 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 mm -hmm. particularly the national parliaments. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think I, I, I agree very much with you, I think. Uh, however, let me ask whether you see it, 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 a switch or a change in, in, in the perception of the crisis now in, in the phases in which we are at the moment, which is a second lockdown, right? So we are now in the phase that, that, that some countries, just like Austria, are now going through a second iteration of people not being allowed to leave their home um, and all other kinds of reductions and, and limitations of their fundamental rights. Uh, do you see again this as a reiteration of the same symptoms of the crisis or has anything changed in this second no, no. cycle no, now? The, the most interesting about this crisis is that we're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult, uh, even when I was basically deciding uh, should I write or not about the crisis, my feeling was it's much easier to write in the early days mm -hmm. than in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Because this is a crisis which, first of all, is changing a lot, and I'm going to, uh, to give you some arguments about this, but the very length of the crisis is going to be critically important of its effect. Mm -hmm. For example, certain policies that were quite acceptable and worked well in March and April are going to have probably a very different uh, political response mm -hmm. in December, or imagine if they're going to be again in March or April next year. So where, where I see basically this, uh, uh, these developments, and uh, even when I was uh, coming with this title, Is It Tomorrow Yet?, a friend of mine emailed me uh, a song of Bob Dylan who said, tomorrow is a long time. Uh, and tomorrow is really a long time. And one of the interesting story about uh, the first lockdown was that, and this is why so many, so different governments, it's different parts of the world, different political system, different societies were doing the same thing was, it was a moment of high uncertainty. Mm -hmm. We have a virus, we don't, we didn't know much about it. Mm -hmm. We don't know how it was spreading, we don't know how to cure it. So in the moment like this, in the moment of high uncertainty, there are two things that you're doing. First, you're working with the worst case scenario, mm -hmm. exactly because you don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, what is quite interesting, particularly if you're democratic governments, you're trying to do what others are doing, because not knowing what to do, you don't want to be accused tomorrow that you didn't do what your neighbors did. Mm -hmm. This is why I was quite always impressed by uh, uh, Sweden, not because I agree that they were right uh, uh, or wrong uh, during this uh, uh, debate of how to respond, but because the very way uh, to do something different than anybody else in the European Union, this mm -hmm. kind of dissenting position was a highly risky one. Mm -hmm. uh, because most of the other governments, even when they're saying, why are you doing this? Why are you locking down? They're going to say, look what my, our neighbors are doing. They're doing the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so from this point of view, I do believe in uh, uh, March and April, everything was about uncertainty. But politics is about translating uncertainty into risks. Mm -hmm. And it is about managing risks. And this is why I do believe that now uh, the population on one level is kind of exhausted and tired of, uh, of being locked down, of being of this level of uncertainty, but also they start to ask the government, what do you learn from the crisis? Why do you believe that what something that worked in March or April should be repeated now? And this is across the board. And I do believe it's politically is going to, the reaction is going to be much more different than it was uh, during the first weeks when basically the lockdown strengthened the position of the governments. Now they can weaken them. Yeah, and uh, when, when we talk about Sweden, I mean, one of, the, one of the explanations that I read about Sweden was that in Sweden, the, the approach was different because the experts were the one leading uh, the, the, uh, the response. So it was an expert's opinion then um, steering the government's um, reactions, whereas in many Europe, other European countries, it was the government setting uh, the political agenda and listening or not listening to the experts, right? So there were clearly differences in how important experts are and which experts were part of the political game, but it was a political decision in most of the countries. And in, in Sweden, at least this is the argument, it was an expert's position. Um, how would you assess the role of experts in this debate uh, in in Europe at the moment? And and do they uh, is there anything that we can learn from from what they are doing or not doing on the importance of intellectuals on the political um, 
in the political framework at the moment? This is a great this is a great question because particularly in the beginning of the crisis, I was one of those that was convinced that uh, unlike the global financial crisis or the migration crisis, where the experts view have been highly mistrusted by the general public, mm -hmm. uh, this was one of the crises in which you can at least expect the restoration of a trust in the expertise because this is about people, uh, about their own public health uh, and. Uh, in the beginning, we had the feeling that people and also governments are much more ready to listen to the experts than ever before. Mm -hmm. But then in the late May, uh, European Council on Foreign Relations did a public opinion survey trying to see how the trust of experts is varying in different EU member states. And of course, there are difference. Countries like Germany, for example, or Denmark, the trust in the experts is much higher than in places like Italy or France. But one of the interesting stories that we ended up with a three group of people when it comes to the experts and expertise. One is, and this is quite interesting, almost one third of the European publics who remains very mistrustful to the experts, they're buying any type of a conspiracy theories that are going to come uh, 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 to you. And the reason they don't trust science and experts is that experts disagree between themselves. Mm -hmm. And in some countries, we're talking about a very high profile experts who disagree. A Nobel Prize winner disagreeing with a Nobel Prize winner in the case of France. Mm -hmm. And I, we can easily argue that this is how science works. There is a science because scientists disagree. Mm -hmm. But for many ordinary people, the fact that there was no one common expert opinion is a reason enough not to trust anybody. Mm -hmm. The second group, trusted experts and science. But the third group is very interesting and this touches very much on what you are saying. This is people who in general trust expertise but they do believe that governments are simply selecting the experts that are going to justify the position that they have taken already mm -hmm. and allowing the experts to influence their positions. Mm -hmm. And this third group is particularly powerful in a countries in which the COVID-19 response was highly politicized and in the countries in which societies are politically polarized. For example, Poland is such an uh, country in which almost one third of the people said yes in general we trust experts and science but we don't trust uh, them now because this is the government that is selecting the experts and not the way uh, mm -hmm. that experts are influencing the government. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the typical um, answers to this uh, was in my view that people asked for more transparency uh, how those experts are selected and uh, what their background is and what their interest is. When I prepared for this, uh, for this talk, I, I saw a TED uh, presentation that you gave in 2012, I think, uh, that's on the internet, where you were very critical about the idea that transparency um, is a good idea in the political process, I would say, uh, because at least in my reading, because one of the arguments that you said there is transparency is one of the best instruments for the people in power to silence those who are not, right? Uh, you even yeah. quote, uh, I think, a president there saying that this is the best instrument to silence my ministers if everyone can read on the next day what they are saying. So is transparency then in this expert dilemma something different from the political process? Or would you insist that also there this issue that where there is a lot of light, there is a lot of shadow applies? Well, listen, my major argument was, and is still I very strongly believe it, that transparency can be an important instrument for policy. Uh, transparency cannot be the goal of a policy. Mm -hmm. uh, you can be very transparent and at the same time come with a very wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. Transparency is not going to predetermine the quality of the decisions. Mm -hmm. Some of the major dictatorial decisions were incredi incredibly transparent. Mm -hmm. uh, basically trying to destroy certain ethnic groups and others, it was not put in hidden. So what was interesting, of course, is the conflict of interests. People were very sensitive on this for very good reasons, because there is this kind of a fear that in the moment of crisis, many companies basically see an opportunity to make an incredibly big money. But I do believe we're talking about something which is much more deeper in the way the modern world functions. We have experts with different expertise. They are people who basically are experts on the spread of disease. They are different type of a medical fields in which you are expert. And as a result of it, you're seeing the crisis very differently. Mm -hmm. And then paradoxically, where is the political side of the expertise? The political side of the expertise is to try to identify what is the real risk for society. And from this point of view, the 
biggest risk from political point of view is the collapse of the public health system, which is not simply going to increase the number of people suffering and dying, but this is going to be the crisis of the legitimacy of the state as such. Mm-hmm. Listen, in Bulgaria now, in the last week, we are seeing several cases in which patients are moved from hospital to hospital and there is not a hospital that is ready mm-hmm. uh, to basically treat them mm-hmm. and to get them there because all beds are full and basically uh, there is no capacity for this. This type of a crisis is the crisis that the government should prevent at any cost because if people cannot rely on the public health uh, system, this is a crisis uh, which goes much more beyond the health of one or the other person. So from this point of view, uh, it is quite interesting to see how the decisions are taken. Uh, For example, one of the interesting story about Sweden was that not simply that the certain type of experts took the decision and according to their uh, legislation, this decision is not taken by the government, but uh, by independent agency. Uh, But this independent agency took into account the fact that, for example, density of uh, people living in the same apartment, things like this. It is also very much understanding the society in which you live, high level of responsibility. And from this point of view, one of the most interesting things, and uh, I'll finish on this, which I figured out is that the countries that are doing relatively well in Europe, but particularly outside of Europe, I mean, countries like Singapore uh, started now better, but South Korea, Taiwan, which was very, very successful. It's a countries, China is a slightly different case because of a kind of the nature of the response that they have. But what is important about the Asian countries, they have an experience with a similar crisis for the last 20 years because of SARS. Mm-hmm. They were better prepared because they knew how to respond. They knew how their public responds. They knew how public health system responds. And I don't believe this is critically important. And from this point of view to say, the experts take the decision, the experts take, can take the decision how to treat the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But the political risk of how many people are basically closing and destroy the public health system at the end of the day is a political decisions and the politicians should be responsible for it. Yeah, it's very interesting to me that you st- that you quote Taiwan uh, here and also Singapore and Hong Kong uh, because both of those were very successful in the sense that there are more or less no cases there. Yeah. So it's not that the public health system is is fighting against the stress. There is no stress because there's nobody sick. Whereas uh, the paradigm that we have in Europe is the one that you referred to, which is we need to avoid under all circumstances that there are too many patients for the intensive care units. That's a different goal, I would say. It's not the same thing. Um, And and I, I would like to ask you, um, uh, or I would like to repeat that the, the, the sentence that you said before that politics is uh, is a transformation is trans- transforming uncertainty into risk is exactly what we see at the moment in Europe, right? Because it's not transforming uncertainty into let the disease be um, a, a completely extinct, but it's let the disease be present in a sense that we can still tolerate because the intensive care units will make it, right? Yeah. And, and that that's, looks like a different approach than the Asian one. Wouldn't you agree? On- no, no, I'll agree. But the story is that the Asians succeeded to basically, uh, in a certain way, avoid high number of infections, exactly because in the previous crisis, mm-hmm. uh, they went to a situation in which quite a lot of people have died. So strangely enough, if you see on the level of the legislation, they have a special legislation coming from 2012, South Koreans. Yeah. For example, if you see on the level of the surveillance and all this virus tracking uh, apps and others, this is the legacy of 2012 crisis. And by the way, they're surveying as aggressively and brutally as the Chinese do. So from this point of view, it's quite interesting to see and uh, because South Korea is a democratic country, uh, China is not. One of the interesting story for me was to what extent the border between democracies and non-democracies on certain level have been blurred as a result mm-hmm. of this crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're totally right in one thing that it's very important to know what is the problem that the government is trying to solve. Mm-hmm. One is basically to prevent the spread of the disease. In a certain way, I do believe Europe was this already in February. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons was that we were totally unprepared. Now the story is 
how basically to keep the society dealing with this, decreasing the number of people dying and going to the intensive cares, but also the economic part of it should not be underestimated trying to keep economy moving as much as possible. Because now I do believe also on the level of society what starts to change is that if in March and April, people were totally preoccupied with their health, now many of them look around and said, what's going to happen to my job? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be enough money? What is going to happen to my business? Is it now that countries that are doing better uh, with the pandemics are going to replace us on the market? And I do believe this is making the calculation much more difficult than it was in March in April. Yeah, about the blurring between democracies and non-democracies, just a, a spontaneous remark. The Austin Chancellor even uh, tweeted that whatever we need to do needs to be done because no matter whether it's a democracy or um, I think I think he said something like authoritarian regime, these are the rules that need to be followed. So there is an explicit statement even of the of of, of the as I said the chancellor. Uh, but I would also like to know uh, now from you: how, Is this change in the perception so that it's no longer just a disease, but that the economic part of it is also coming into the into the game and into the calculation? Is this something that is driven by? the people understanding better the implications of this of the whole pandemic or is it driven by the by the political class now taking more into consideration how the country uh, they are responsible for competes with others or is it is it a better understanding of the environment in which we are that drives this development i don't believe it's a mixture of all of them so on one no. level of course uh, the government try to imagine how much money are going to be needed basically to keep uh, economies surviving in the conditions? And as I told you, the biggest question is how long it can take. Mm-hmm. And this is a very interesting question because strangely enough, in March and April, there are still people who believe that we're going to be fine during the summer. In yeah. the autumn, we're going to be back to the normal. And now for the first time, people start to say, what about two years, three years? Even the vaccine, which is, of course, very much moving the markets, is quite interesting because, listen, the, the emergence and the existence of the vaccine is not the end of the crisis. Mm-hmm. This is the critical mass of vaccinated people that is the end of the crisis. Mm-hmm. And particularly in many of the Western and non-Western countries, there is a strong opposition to vaccines in general or to this particular vaccine. Also, there is a huge question who is going to be vaccinated when. And for me, one of the interesting stories is that if you see this crisis, the groups who are most vulnerable uh, to the public health dimension of the crisis and to the economic dimension of the crisis are not the same group. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're an older person, mm-hmm. of course, the threat that you're going to be infected and as a result of it, you're going to end up in the intensive care or dying is much higher than if you're a younger person. Mm-hmm. On the other side, if you're a younger person who just graduated university, uh, the chance that you're not going to find a job if this continues for a year or two mm-hmm. is becoming higher and higher. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the interesting story about this crisis is that because of this type of asymmetries, Uh, it is starting to change the perceptions. In the first uh, wave of the crisis, the level of solidarity, people caring for each other, in my view, was a spontaneous response to this crisis. Mm -hmm. And now starts to come the question, who is losing, who is benefiting? And of course, we talk a lot about uh, staying at home is an option for whom and for whom it is not an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, and this is this is interesting. Also, the economic preoccupation can be seen in the fact that if in the first uh, wave, the instinctive reaction of the government was to close the borders. And by the way, the Austrian government was very vocal on this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you see with the second wave, you can basically insist of people not leaving their houses, but at the same time, nobody's pushing for closing the borders Mm -hmm. because understanding that from the economic point of view, this is going to be extremely destructive Mm -hmm. because there are certain things that we learned from the first wave of the crisis. And one of them is how economically interdependent uh, uh, Europeans are. And Mm -hmm. this is is quite interesting. And this is what governments learned. And also, by the way, what businesses learned. Yeah, and that in a way is a very, you can see this as a very positive story in the sense that Europe is getting a much better uh, or a much better perception at the moment than it got in, in March and April, because that was really striking then that one of the very first reactions of the Austrian government and many of the others in, in Europe was simply shutting down everything and, and going back to a very 
old nationalistic political approach, right? So we don't care about our neighbors, it's just us that we need to take care of. And that is different in this phase now. Um, it is different and for me this is interesting because even this was uh, there was this uh, nationalistic uh, instinct immediately uh, strangely enough historically this is not new normally closing of the borders was one of the initial reactions of the government starting with the 17th century mm -hmm. Uh, how they react to the crisis, because in the moment of the pandemics, the most important is to know who is in and who is out, who is moving mm -hmm. from where to where, and the very mm -hmm. idea of the passport, as we know, is very much connected to the plagues <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and yeah. to the other movement of people. But what was interesting is that something that even on this first stage, this type of a nationalist reaction was slightly different than the one that we see during, saw during the migration crisis. Mm -hmm. Because it was nationalism based not origin, but on residence. It was quite interesting to see that, mm -hmm. for example, many countries, uh, people were very much trying to include the foreigners that are living in the countries during the pandemics, because you cannot leave them on their own, because basically they're going to get infected, they're going to infect others. Mm -hmm. At the same time, after the first two or three weeks in which you try to get your own come back, if they, your own decided to stay out of the country, the government is saying it was your choice. Mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. bother me mm -hmm. uh, and also it was interesting to see this kind of a local local regional kind of a nationalism that emerged mm -hmm. in france there was a major revolt uh, against basically the people coming from paris and other urban centers mm -hmm. to their second houses to their summer houses saying listen what mm -hmm. you're coming to infect us so this was an interesting story and then comes what you're uh, uh, pointing out what we learned from the first crisis is that this type of a closing of the borders is economically suicidal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, suddenly, particularly for countries like Austria, you realize to what extent the Austrian economy is dependent, not simply on foreigners in the country, but people who are crossing borders on the daily base. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do believe this changed the perception and paradoxically a crisis that started as a kind of a crisis very much defined by the nationalistic instinct. It ended as a crisis that basically uh, convinced the government that economic nationalism does not, does not have, uh, mm -hmm. does, can, simply cannot function mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the current state of European economies. Mm -hmm. Several remarks. First one, we had very similar stories like in France, also in Austria. So people in Burgenland, which is 50 kilometers away from Vienna, asking not we, that Viennese should not come because they are bringing the disease. So it, uh, that's really completely absurd because it's 50 kilometers and it's culturally absolutely the same, uh, the same thing, obviously. So it's simply fear of getting infected. Second, uh, there is a debate in Austria about in how far this uh, nationalism uh, is to be understood in the sense that we are talking about people having a specific passport or whether it's about people living in a certain territory. Um, and, uh, and, and that debate was interesting to see because some of the far right and conservative politicians insisted on we are talking about Austrians here and not about people uh, who are residents. And the third remark uh, that now about the borders and how, how borders become a little bit absurd. One of the funny stories in this country is that now in this lockdown, we learn that if you are not allowed to work from your, in your office, but you are allowed to work from home, please do so, but be sure that your office, uh, sorry, that your home is within the Austrian borders. Interesting. So, so, so you may work remotely, but only if it's inside the country. And there are social security rules uh, that, that or, or labor law rules, or both of them leading into this situation. But I think that people who are affected by this do not really tolerate that very well, right? So. No, it's very interesting because the moment when you say people stay home, yeah. Uh, you are basically pushing people to decide where is home. Indeed. Uh, and the home could be only on one place. Uh, and it was interesting because uh, uh, this pushed, by the way, a huge movement of people, around 200,000 uh, Bulgarians came back to the country in the first round of, uh, uh, of the pandemics, because most of these people are basically labor migrants, which are living in an apartment with five, six other persons who basically are paid on a sum of time, even on a weekly basis. So for them, the places where they have been working was not home. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, uh, the very idea that you should have one place and one home mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
was this incre incredibly interesting story that you're talking also about Austria and Paris, that is, if you're from Paris, stay in Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was very much, uh, I was very much interested how the idea of mobility mm -hmm. uh, suddenly started to be perceived as a threat. Suddenly people start asking the questions on one level, during mm -hmm. the summer, you're going to see people saying, I'm ready to take the risk, but I want to go somewhere because for me, not moving is the best kind of a signal that I'm losing my freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the mobility, and by the way, this particularly strong on Eastern Europe, where for us, in a certain way, crossing the borders, mobility was the strongest uh, experience that we get after the end of the Cold War. And on the other side, this kind of idea that immobile people are the only people that fit for the COVID-19 world. And this is, this, is, this is quite interesting for me. Yeah, and indeed, and it's very, I mean, again, in the second wave now, this is a, a success factor or something where you measure in how far the policy, politics are successful, in how far they manage to reduce the mobility and it's surveyed by, by tracing and tracking the mobile phones of the population, arguing that this is not really a legal problem because everything is anonymous, right? So the, the story that is told is let us track where people, whether people stay at home by using their mobile data. And we are allowed to do so because it's not about their personality rights and it's not about their personal right to data protection because we do this only anonymously. So uh, I, that of course- You, you absolutely, uh, and I, I can't imagine that you had this discussion yeah. uh, knowing the profile uh, of the conversation that you had, but this is critically important because it's the problem, what do you govern being yeah. a government? Yeah. So what do you uh, and, and from this point of view, this is a major interesting story that is coming also into transformation of the modern authoritarian regimes. Yeah. Uh, because this is the, the big data authoritarianism that comes from China. Mm -hmm. In a certain way, this is about governing through big data and in a certain way, moving population flows. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, uh, on one level, this funnily enough, this is a police state in the absence of the police informers because everybody's going to inform on himself. Yeah. Uh, so in a certain way, basically everybody is going to be followed by the state and so on. And, and this is, in my view, this is quite interesting because normally uh, mm -hmm. democracy is based on the fact that I know best what is best for me. Mm -hmm. I could be right or wrong, but this is also about my vote. Mm -hmm. And nobody, the whole feedback which the government gets is based on what an individual is going to make as his position in the way he's voting or doing. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly with this big data uh, comes the government and said, we know better than you what you want mm -hmm. based on your previous choices, on your movements, on the risks and so on. And this is, this is a huge issue. I do believe that this is the central issue of the modern society. If the government believes that they know better than me what I'll do and some of the big technology companies has absolutely the same claim, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this famous story in the United States uh, in which uh, a 15 year girl, uh, basically her parents went ballistic and they went against Google because she started uh, to receive this targeted advertisement mm -hmm. uh, for baby food and things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it appeared that uh, she's pregnant. She didn't know that she's pregnant, but based on the big data and what she's consuming and what she's doing, uh, the Google algorithm figured out that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a story that if the government can figure out what I'll do or what I'm likely to do without asking me, this is the central attack on the very essence of a democratic society that nobody mm -hmm. can know better than me what I want. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's very, very interesting, but I would like to, uh, I, I want to add one thing here. The, the typical Western understanding of the problem, in particular, the typical Western European understanding of the problem is, well, then it's you as an individual who needs to take care of this. And therefore you need to be put into a position where you are in control of your data. And we are talking about personal information, therefore. And I think the longer I think about this, the more I have the feeling that this is a misconception and that you, that you can read this already in Foucault. And if you go back to Jeremy Bentham and all the others, which is the, the government or the state or, or the player, a 
processing the big data is not really interested in you as a person. It's not okay. about you, right? It's about the, 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 the millions of people and, and, and the tracking of anybody. And it's no matter who you are. And therefore, it's not really important whether we know who you are, provided that we know what you are doing. So yeah. it, leads into, it leads to a kind of fundamental issue of how fundamental rights have to be understood in a world where the individual is no longer treated as an individual personality. Uh, but here, I totally agree with you. And I do believe this is also the paradox about which probably we should talk much more in the future. On one level, the market is individualizing you as much as possible. It's trying basically to serve any kind of eccentricity that you have in your mind. And also you more and more are trying to define yourself as being different than others. On the other side, the government less and less is interested in this because for the first time through the big data, the governments are really governing populations and not collection of individuals. Mm -hmm. And from this point of view, it's interesting because normally you're going to say that the governments are going to go against dissentants uh, uh, and people who are dissenting, and this is going to have in, in ideological connotations. Now the governments go against deviations. They are yes. not interested <laughs> in the reason why you're not doing what others should do or what you're told to do. Uh, and I do believe you and my view are touching on the major problem modern democracy comes. Uh, individual more and more had the feeling that He's more important in a certain way, much more powerful because the market is telling him, tell me what you want, I'm ready to serve you. And on the other side, basically the government is telling him, listen, I really don't care about you much. Yeah. I'm caring about the anxiety. I don't care what you're going to do or not to do. And, and this, is, this is what in my view also create this strange story of powerlessness where people can have the feeling that in many respects we are freer than any before, but there is no direct connections between our political power as individuals, being voters or citizens, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and our freedom. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then again, it's getting much more important how long all these uh, crises will last, right? Because at the moment, one can still argue, well, this is a short transition period. We will go back to normal after um, we have finally found the vaccine. But the longer this period lasts, the more difficult it is to argue, well, this is just, you know, an episode. It's getting more and more the new normal, interestingly. And, and I, would, I would really like, therefore, to learn from you what you think about the, the fact that governments are, seem to be, at least in my reading, very reluctant in telling the population that it might be the case that this is going to last longer than just for Christmas. So in the first phase we had, it will be over after Easter. It was a very, Ruth Wodak talked about that yesterday. It was even a very Christian story that was told so that we would have some kind of surviving Easter and coming back in a better world after Easter. Now it's surviving Christmas and then everything will be, or surviving four weeks ahead of Christmas and then everything will be in a completely new light. So the, the, the story that are, the stories that are told are always so, cycles of three, four, five weeks, two months, three months. Nobody talks about that could last for two years, five years, 10 years, and it would be the new, new normal. Why is this? Is this because it's not in the perception of the, of, of the politicians or is it because it's too dangerous to talk about that or too fearful? Or Any type of extra powers that you want, you're going to justify it as temporal. Hmm. Uh, and this is true for any type of a war-related legislation or epidemics. Yeah. And Orban was so interesting in this, right? Because Orban, Orban in, uh, that's exactly what he did. And he even said, then I, I, I give this back now to the, to, the, to the people, right? Because I no longer need it. So it's... Uh, uh, in his case, it was even more interesting than this. Yeah. Because uh, normally you try to basically uh, retire the parliament in the moment of crisis because you believe that the parliament can try to put pressure on you, keep you accountable, produce noise. Mm -hmm. In the case of Hungary, you have a parliament in which the government has a constitutional majority at its very yeah. Yeah. disciplined one. So the major story, and I'll try to, uh, to research this, was why suddenly, basically, Orban asked uh, to retire the parliament for the moment of uh, the extraordinary situation when you have a parliament which is going to do anything you're going to ask him to do. Mm. And this is the interesting story. Uh, and this is very much telling you something about the nature of the regime. Uh, what in a certain way 
uh, of uh, this is, was the, the, the outcome of, uh, of my uh, interviews and research. What was happening was that the opposition was quite ready to support extraordinary legislation because they were seeing this happening everywhere. And they understood that government, any government, should have more rights in the moment of crisis. Uh, but then for Orban, this consensus was perceived as a threat and not as an opportunity, because if you and the opposition are on the same position, then the political polarization on which the regime is based mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. starting to weaken. Mm-hmm. So then he came with a certain piece of legislation like this, which was totally unacceptable for the opposition. Mm-hmm. So he wanted the opposition to vote against, so he can make the famous statement that the opposition is the ally of the virus. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so strangely enough, normally a governments in a moment of crisis are looking for unity. Mm-hmm. But if your political legitimacy is based on a deep political polarization and trying to demonize the opposition as an enemy and not simply as an opponent, then for you, uh, the unity is also a kind of a crisis for your own legitimacy. And this is why you have this, the Hungarian paradox Mm -hmm. in which you're trying to grab the power that you already have. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're returning the power, which you're returning nothing because you're keeping basically the same power (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I mean, at least in, in, in the Austrian example, I don't want to compare Hungary with Austria here, obviously, but still, uh, it's interesting perhaps to look in, a little bit into Austria. However, in Austria, the situation was that on, in the first wave in March and April, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the government was very much supported also by the, by the opposition. So there was some kind of, you know, we, we solidarity, I would even call it, right? So everyone was very much in, in favor of, of setting uh, responses very quickly. That is very different this time. This time the government is now uh, uh, confronted with, a, with an opposition which voted against the measures that are taken at the moment. And one could read this now as a kind of going back to normal meaning it's now more or less a typically normal political process where people say this and others say that. One could also say that this is just a transition to something which is going to come. And it will be very important to see what's going to come because what we have at the moment is, is that the government sets the rules by regulations. Only the government is in charge of setting. So there is no parliament needed for this in many cases. And the parliament then being dominated obviously by a majority that covers the government or shares the government's perspective uh, is confronted with an opposition that is completely weak right they can't change anything and and this it will be in my view very interesting to see how this is going to, how long this is going to last right because if it's going to last for long it will certainly weaken uh, the opposition significantly no matter what's going to happen and what no matter what they're going to say right No, you're making a very important point, because if you go back to March and April, and even May, in most of the countries, you have a government without oppositions. And it was not simply that the parliaments were not there, but the opposition, either for reason of political responsibility, felt obliged to stay where the government is, or basically they didn't know what to say. Uh, This started to change, I believe, somewhere in the summer. And the funny story was that there is an epidemic, but there are elections too. Yeah. Uh, and from this point of view, you should try to position yourself as different. You should try basically to push the government to do this and that. It's quite interesting to see that, uh, uh, for example, you, it's not easy to understand what kind of a position certain type of political parties on the left or the right are going to adopt. It very mm-hmm. much depends are they in government or in opposition. Mm-hmm. For example, the Swedish Democrats which are classical populist parties, and you expect them to do what, for example, Marie Le Pen is doing in France, Mm -hmm. to go against uh, the restrictions. But in Sweden, because the government was much more a kind of a light touch approach, they're insisting for stricter (laughs) stricter (laughs) rules. So they're going to position and try to basically politicize uh, any opposition on this. What was interesting for me, and I had this in a book on the pandemics, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons why extraordinary legislations and basically extra powers for the government, in my view, was less dangerous than many in the beginning feared was that it happened in all the countries at the same time. Mm -hmm. So people start to compare. Mm-hmm. And from this point of view, Orban is a great example. If everybody else is starting to lift the extraordinary legislation, mm-hmm. 
it is a huge risk that you decide to be the last one keeping mm -hmm. it. All the time people are trying to compare how much power governments are trying to get in Austria compared to the Czech Republic, compared to Germany, compared to Sweden. And this type of comparisons uh, turn to be one of the major way you're criticizing a government. Mm -hmm. You're going and saying, why are you taking this and that when in other countries, for example, these rights of the people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, have not been limited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is also, in my view, quite interesting for the European politics, because suddenly we discovered Europe as a common political space. Mm -hmm. All these comparisons between the EU member states, in my view, are much more intensive than they have been ever before. Mm -hmm. Which is also positive, uh, if one may yeah. see it. So it's a positive outcome of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Ivan, uh, thank you. I think we covered quite some topics now, and there is so much food for thought in all this. Uh, so that that I'm 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 more than sure that that cool. I will come back to you with many questions, at least uh, theoretically, um, in the, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, but I would like to end this conversation today by asking you whether uh, whether there is something that I should have asked you, something that is specifically important that you want to share with our audience, which is an audience that is very much driven by legal questions. So is there anything you want to tell lawyers how to deal with the situation in the next weeks and months? Oh, I don't listen. Uh, the most interesting in any conversation is that you are answering the questions that you're telling. I never like people who basically go in a conversation believing that they have a message. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because this is good for the priests, uh, but I don't believe it's good for the conversations. <laughs> but I do believe this is interestingly about uh, 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 the, legal, uh, the legal dimensions of all this, because on one level, there are going to be distinctions between the national uh, uh, and the European legal space. Mm -hmm. Of course, now they're going to be much more intensive before, because when you're defining the, the existence of the extraordinary situation, normally this is the reasons for which the governments can ask for specific rights. For example, closing of the borders, mm -hmm. this is legally. But when everybody is in an extraordinary situation, yeah. is it not time for the Brussels and for the European Union to try basically also to decide is there a certain level in which we can talk about a European level of a state of emergency and what it means. Mm -hmm. So from this point of view, and this is I do believe a question that you have been asking much more than anybody else, but uh, mm -hmm. the Schmittian type of questions about the nature of the sovereignty, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the sovereign is the one who basically yeah. decides on the state of emergency, uh, have been very much pushed by this crisis because also this is the crisis much more different than a classical war or terrorist attack. It goes, suddenly we are equally vulnerable Mm -hmm. Suddenly, it's about our personal health, and we are seeing it in a different way. And certainly, and I want to end up on this. When I was reading uh, history uh, books, very much on pandemics, writing the book, there was one thing that struck me, and this was that while the pandemics have been incredibly important for transforming European societies, starting with the Black Death, mm -hmm. and then basically going to the Spanish flu. Everybody remembers wars and revolutions, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to remember pandemics. Absolutely. And I do believe for the lawyers, this is an interesting story because you have like in the planes, you have this kind of invisible planes, the famous, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which the radar cannot get. Mm -hmm. I do believe now you can have this kind of a social psychological positioning changes within society, which cannot be from time to time really uh, captured by the legal radars and you can end up in a totally different political and legal space without understanding where the change comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so much work. I, I completely agree. And I re really feel uh, <laughs> I, I, I really feel that I and I think uh, there's so much that we, needs to be written also from a legal perspective on this. And this is a positive ending of this conversation. So I would like to keep it like this. Uh, Ivan, it was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Also to our, our listeners and our audience and our viewers. Have a good day. Stay healthy, stay safe and stay connected with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Much. <laughs> Ciao.